If you'll uh, take your sheet, uh, we'll just summarize a couple of statements. Again, you try and get the flow and movement of the life. Uh, about halfway or a third of the way down the second column, the healing the sick man on the Sabbath, the grain on the Sabbath, the withered hand on the Sabbath. There are the three Sabbath day controversies that we made reference to. A couple below that, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. John had already been arrested. He was in prison. And uh, he uh, gets some of his disciples and sends this message to Jesus. Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are ye he who is to come, or shall we look for another? How do you think John was feeling? Isn't that a word of discouragement that comes? And we can understand that. <coughs> John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. But this was a little too much decreasing, wasn't it? It was, it was tough for him. And he was hearing reports, the same kind of negative reports that the disciples were encountering. And he started to wonder, what in the world's going on here? I, I came uh, with this wonderful message of repentance. Kingdom of God is in hand. Nobody's repenting. It's just not working. And Jesus doesn't say anything, but in that hour he cured many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And when many that were blind, he bestowed sight. We answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And tell him this, Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Takes no offense. And they go off to tell John that this truly is the Messiah to reinforce him. And, and he goes on to say, uh, concerning it, and this is in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That's a very interesting verse. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Later the Lord will say this. This is in Matthew uh, 17 verse 12. I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. If you're willing to accept it, he said, this is this John the Baptist this is that Elijah. But between the time he said that and the time he said the second thing I just read, John had been executed. And that will happen during the Galilean ministry. I want you to look down the line a little bit further. John sends a messenger to Jesus, and then uh, Jesus' friends say he is beside himself. In uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Then he went home. Where is home? Capernaum. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his friends heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, he is beside himself. He no sooner got home uh, from ministering than the crowds gather, and he ministers some more. And his friends are saying, he's losing touch with reality. Too much service. 
Too much ministering. He, he needs a break. Too much commitment. Friends say he is beside himself. I, I suggest that even in our Christian experience now, uh, if you get too serious for God, a lot of friends will say, that's too much. There aren't many Christians who are very serious for God. Have you noticed that? And when you start getting that way, people are like, whoa, what's wrong with you? You got, you know, let's just take it easy. I said that to Jesus. He's beside himself. He's, he's not balanced in his life. The Pharisees make a statement. And uh, this follows in uh, Mark as well, verse 22, Mark 3, 22. The scribes came down from Jerusalem. This is an official, official edict. This is how we explain the miracles. He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, why did the Pharisees come up with that argument? They had to account for him some way, didn't they? Isn't this a genius idea? They said, sure. We admit supernatural things are happening. Supernatural things are happening. But we know how they're happening. Not from God, but from Satan himself. That became an official verdict of how he did his things. On two other references, the Lord refers to that. This burned into the heart of the Lord. In uh, Mark 9, 34, the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And in uh, Matthew 10, verse 25, Jesus, in talking to his disciples, says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is an official verdict, a well-thought-out explanation. Now, what is happening? John the Baptist is imprisoned, and he is doubting. His friends say he's beside himself. The official verdict of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, is he does his miracles by Beelzebub. And then we uh, turn the page, or I turn my page at least, in Matthew 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to them. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And his relatives are saying, and at this point his brothers and sisters were still unsaved. Mary certainly wasn't. But they are interfering and saying, again, like his friends, stop getting so involved. And Jesus makes a very strong statement. He says, they don't have the right idea. These that are with me, my disciples, are my brother and sister and my mother. These who are committed to the ministry that I'm having right now, not those people out there who are my physical relatives who are trying to interfere. Things are not going well. Very little swell of response. John the Baptist is in prison. Friends say he's crazy, sort of unbalanced. Does his work by Beelzebub, say the Pharisees, the religious leaders. His family doesn't even understand. That's the least you can say. It may be stronger than that. He only has a few. 
and uh, the response is, is getting no better. Someplace in this period of time, as we drop down to the lower part of the column, and, and you can't locate this exactly, but Herod kills John the Baptist. Herod kills him, and we know the horrible story connected with that of the, the two wretched ladies who trapped Herod Antipas in this kind of action. The forerunner is executed. That's not good. The uh, struggle clearly is becoming stronger and the lines uh, being drawn very clearly. The twelve uh, are going to hear about this at this point. And we have the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, we just want to look at that uh, briefly. He gives a great sermon. I assume we have all uh, read the Bread of Life discourse. In verse 60 of John 6, it says, Many of the disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The crowds had followed Jesus. He had fed the 5,000 men, probably 10,000 people. He returns to uh, Bethsaida to uh, Capernaum and uh, gives them the bread of life discourse they say what sign do you do that we may believe on you he had just fed them uh, a, a mighty sign and he preaches the reality of a relationship eat my flesh drink my blood <coughs> what sign I'd have given them a sign wouldn't you it wouldn't have been another meal. But uh, they say, what sign do you do? And he said, I, you follow me for bread and fish. I want the reality of a commitment. Take me into your life. <coughs> and the crowd that he had just fed melted. They're gone. And he turns to his disciples and said, uh, what are you going to do? Will you go away also? If you have come to the end, of your most extended period of ministry and uh, you address the ones who particularly identified with you. I wish I had a recording of this. What, what kind of tone do you think the Lord had? I, I hear pathos in his voice. Are you leaving too? Are you going to leave me? Simon Peter says, Hey, I like Peter, don't you? He, he made a couple mistakes, but Boy, he really hits home runs a lot of times. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says, good for you, Peter. Didn't I choose you, the twelve? One of you is a devil. And that's the end of the Galilean ministry. He started out with twelve, and now he's talking about one of them being a devil. He started out with John the Baptist being the forerunner. John the Baptist is dead. He did all these miracles. The deaf are made to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk, the paralyzed uh, well and alive, the dead raised. And they leave his ministry to the point that he had less when he ended than when he started. What kind of grade do you give him on evangelism? What has Galilee said? He'd been through every village of Galilee. 
two by two, he went through, and he ends up after the Bread of Life discourse, and he has the same 12 he started with, and pathetically says to them, are you going to leave too? Galilee said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We'll take his miracles. We'll take his food. No repentance. We're happy in our facade of religion and relationship with God. And the Galilean ministry comes to a close. He says to his disciples, let's take a break. I like that. He says, come apart for a while. Uh, somebody said, if you don't come apart, you come apart. And uh, the Lord takes his 12 outside of Galilee. On the map, he takes them uh, as he is leaving up toward Tyre and Sidon. He is going to take them up into the region of Tyre and Sidon and then come down through the Decapolis, a ten-city Gentile area largely. And in this, he is just teaching his 12. Now, on the way out in the specialized ministry, he will come into contact with the Syrophoenician woman. She is from the area of Tyre and Sidon. And uh, we should look at that just briefly in Matthew 15, because here you have some of that wording that is so distinctly the period of the life of Christ. Behold, verse 22, Matthew 15:22, a Canaanite woman. This is 104 for those of you who have the harmony. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. He did not, did not answer her a word. Now, some say it's because she used the wrong title. She used the right title. She was identifying with him as the king of Israel, the son of David. That wasn't the problem. The problem was he was not yet speaking to the Gentile world. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying. She's a pest. She's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he had told his disciples earlier as they evangelized. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here comes a Gentile pagan woman, and he doesn't even want to talk to her. She comes again. She says, Lord, help me. He answered, it's not fair for me to help you. It's not fair to take the children's bed and throw it to the dogs. How do you like that statement? That's hardly a compliment for her. What, what did he just say? That's right. You're dog of the Gentiles. The goyim. And she didn't take offense to that. She was serious. She says, hey, I like dogs. I've watched dogs. Dogs always sit by the children's place at the table. They get the crumbs. That's all I'm asking for, Lord, a crumb. And he rewards her according to her great faith. It's not a great story. And the Lord responds to her out of his own limitations of going only to the lost sheep of Israel. The feeding of the 4,000 takes place here. Gentile territory. Notice in, verse, uh, in Matthew 15, verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. Notice that little difference. People he fed the first time were, were Jewish folk. This is in his sweep out, and this is a, a pure, pure, pure compassion miracle. Just the Syrophoenician woman extended. They glorified the God of Israel. 
And he tells people not to tell anybody about that. Well, how do you not? But you see, it's not his purpose yet to be evangelizing in this period of his ministry. He is getting away from the crowd. And uh, finally, he does that, and uh, he gets to his disciples, his disciples all by themselves, and uh, asks them this question in the area of Caesarea Philippi. This is in the Decapolis. Here's the question. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? A little quiz for the disciples. He wants to teach them some things here. Now, the title Son of Man is one of these interesting titles in Scripture. Uh, the words, the names are not used indiscriminately. This is the Lord's favorite title of himself, Son of Man. He always, most always, refers to himself as the Son of Man, 80-some times. Never calls himself the Son of God. He uh, agrees with people who call him that, but he calls himself the Son of Man. It's the favorite title of the Gospel writers of the Lord Jesus. When you get out of the Gospels, it disappears from the pages of Scripture, except for three occasions. It occurs in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned, the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. It occurs in Hebrews chapter 2, What is man that thou, a quote of Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you visiteth him? And it occurs in Revelation chapter 4, where the Lord Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? Now, why? That's the big question. The title originates in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And it's a very insightful thing when we read that. In Daniel 7, you are uh, rehearsing the history of what God is going to be doing in the kingdoms. And you have the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom. And let's review this again. What's the next one? The Greek kingdom and then the Roman and then another kingdom. What's the next one? Yeah, that's part of the Roman, okay. What's the next one? The what? Millennium's right answer. And in that series, in Daniel 7, you see the Son of Man approaching the throne of heaven to receive a kingdom and a crown and authority. You see, the Gospels are about the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2 is about the coming age when the consequences of sin are reversed and uh, a pre-fall condition is established again on the earth. That's what Hebrews 2 is all about. When man, as man, reigns as God designed it. Revelation 4 begins the, the acquiring of that kingdom by the Son of Man. It's more than his humanity. It's a kingdom phrase. It relates to him receiving his inheritance. And he says to his disciples, Who do you say? What do, who do men say? And he'd go on and give a number of answers. He said, how about you? What do you say? Peter says, this is what we say about you. Peter's right again. You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Is that a great statement? You're the Messiah. Deity himself. Here on earth with us. Jesus says, Good for you, Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this rock. What rock? It could be, you are Peter. Stone. On this rock. We had a videotape and saw the Lord's motion. We could be dogmatic. On this rock, myself, I will build my church. Or you're Peter. One of the apostles. And on the foundation of the apostles, the church will be built. Ephesians tells us that. Or... The rock, the foundation could be that great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of those have biblical precedent. Uh, most of us favor the rock being the Lord Jesus, the foundation of the church, but all of those are legitimate. Now, the important new revelation here is the church. You're Peter. On this rock I will build my church. What's the tense of that sentence, I will build my church? Future. It's not what he was doing. It's not what he was about. He wasn't using the word church, a called out company. He was using the word kingdom. This is the word that crashes down on their ears. It's a new word for them in relationship to, their, uh, to, the, to the future. I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then we read something that's amazing. Verse 21 from that time, from the time he said, I will build my church, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. From that very moment that he reveals the concept of the church, he gives them another ingredient that is crucial to their understanding. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. Now, that presents a problem. I want you to look at, here's another verse nobody ever memorizes, but a critical one. In uh, Luke chapter 9 and verse 45, which is at the end of this teaching, we read this. They did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them that they should not perceive it. Now, why is that important? That's right. It wasn't time for them to put all the pieces of this new thing together. In fact, it would have been impossible for them to go on and conduct the Judean ministry where Jesus tells them again, go out and preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. If they said, well, this isn't going to work. We've already swung into plan B, the church. You, you do not make very enthusiastic preachers if you know what you're offering isn't going to happen. And it was hidden from them, lest they should understand and perceive it. That's an important concept. That's the only way I know of explaining how Jesus can tell them, I'm going to build my church, there's going to be another thing coming, and uh, I'm going to suffer and die. It's the only way they can go into the rest of their ministry with any truthfulness and reality 
and enthusiasm in proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. We read it from our perspective, and we can understand it, that there is this, uh, what the Lord will call a delay. Later, he will tell them a parable as they're going up to Jerusalem, because they suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He will tell them a parable about a person going into a foreign country and receiving power and returning. And he has to instruct them that there's going to be a delay in the establishment of the kingdom based on the rejection. Well, we still have two provinces that are going to reject. And he gives them this word of encouragement and then hides the reality of it from them. And they come out of this excited but not very informed yet. They, they come out of this upbeat but they're really not sure why. Well, from our perspective, we can understand why. The church, he introduces it here. He says, uh, one of our sisters asked last night, well, what about the statement, true, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom. This is when it happens. Right after the story, <coughs> the uh, revelation of his coming death, the institution of the church, he says, but some of you are here who are going to see the kingdom before you die. And we see him taking the three, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the words of the baptism are repeated. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And you have there the Old Testament saints, Elijah and Moses. I'm not sure how Moses got there. There is a, an apocryphal story about the assumption of Moses. And in the book of Jude, you have an argument with Michael and and Satan over the body of Moses. Uh, maybe Moses was resurrected out of order. But at any rate, you have Moses and Elijah, and you have Peter, James, and John, and you have the king in all his glory uh, transfigured before them. A little microcosm. You can't have a big microcosm. A microcosm. Microcosm of the kingdom here on earth. And they saw what that kingdom was going to be like. Now, in this passage, unless we miss an important thing. He continues ministry relating to church life. This is all the ministry <clears throat> Jesus gives in his lifetime that is related to the church. And uh, let's look at that because I think it's very important that we have some concept about this. In uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to him, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is the only thing Jesus tells us about church life in his human experience. That's strange. I'd have picked something else myself. I, I'd have probably picked uh, church government or the role of women in the church. I like that one, being male. Yeah. What's he pick? 
Can you identify the subject he picks? The relationships to each other within the church. Who? That's right. It's a discipline. If any man sins against you. What is the Lord concerned most of all about with his people? It's always this way. Our purity, our sinlessness. He wants us to be holy people. The one thing Jesus talks about when he talks about, takes a look into the future about church life, he says, I want you folks to handle sin. I don't want sin amongst my people. Has he always been that way? Always have been. You remember Achan? Don't want sin. I don't. Does he want sacrifice? He wants. He wants obedience. Does he want confession of sin? He wants us not to sin. When we do sin, he wants confession. He said of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, ultimately what? I've had enough of this. Sacrifice and offerings. No more. I want somebody who delights to do the will of God. And Jesus will take those words on himself. The author of Hebrews will. I delight to do thy will. Oh my God. He wants obedience. He wants people who don't sin. And when Peter writes about the characteristic of God that we are to imitate, what does he say? Be ye holy. It is the controlling attribute of God. I was uh, in our rotation in our assembly speaking. Uh, we were going through the names of God, and the name I got was uh, Kodash Israel, Holy One of Israel. Well, we have computer studies now. Any of you into that yet? It's wonderful. So I punched up on my computer that name. I had a printout. Fifty-five times it occurs in the Old Testament. 35 times in the book of Isaiah. That said something real quick. What what did Isaiah see of the Lord? Isaiah 6. Hold the ser heard the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that so impacted on Isaiah that when he thinks of God, he thinks of his holiness first. And he says, uh, the Holy One of Israel redeems his people. The Holy One of Israel loves his people. The Holy One of Israel forgives his people. The Holy One of Israel shepherds his people. And there's a whole series of statements where all of the other attributes of God are plugged under, under the holiness of God. Charnock points out, when you uh, finally get to Hebrews, he said, God reaches out from one of his attributes to demonstrate his faithfulness. And he says, the God who cannot lie. He ascribes his holiness as the thing that makes everything else tick in the Godhead. I think holiness is a controlling factor. And when Jesus says, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the church. I'm going to build my church. And here's my big desire for the church. That God's people learn how to handle sin in their lives. That they be holy people. Isn't that a big message? We need it now more than ever. 
separate from sin. Holy people. And he finishes these sayings, and we get on with the Judean ministry. Hey, this is amazing. This specialized teaching of the Twelve, in which he introduces the concept of a new program, but it is hidden from them, uh, so that they can go on to the rest of their ministry, carrying on the evangelistic outreach that is necessary. I need to pause. We've been sailing low here. The questions that might come to your mind as we see the movement of the life of Christ up through this specialized ministry. Any questions that you might have over the events that we covered or did not? Yes. I think it's yet to be fulfilled. Okay. The question is, uh, concerning Elijah, this is that Elijah to come, if you believe. What was it there? Was it fulfilled for the people who believed? Or is that yet something to be fulfilled? I think this is potentially the fulfillment of that prophecy. If the nation, if the Sanhedrin, if there is response to the message, then John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. Jesus goes on to say, they did to him whatever they pleased. They executed him. So I assume then it is not fulfilled. Could have been, but wasn't. Could have been, but wasn't. It will yet be fulfilled in the tribulation period. One of the witnesses, perhaps, some say Elijah will come back or John the Baptist will come back. I don't think you have to have that. It does not have to be Elijah, literally, because uh, John the Baptist could have been that person. So it's not necessarily a literal Elijah that comes back. But there will be one who comes again in the power and the spirit of Elijah, perhaps one of the two witnesses. Maybe John the Baptist and Elijah are the two witnesses that come back preparing the people for the Lord again. So I think it went unfulfilled. Uh, I think you have the same thing at the day of Pentecost, where Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. But it wasn't. Uh, the rest of the fulfillment, or any of it, didn't eventuate, depending on what Israel will do with that. And they rejected it. So what could have been didn't become. It gets shifted up to the future. Potentially it's all there. It's really the same question I was dealing with earlier. Here's the offer of the kingdom. Is it a legitimate offer if you respond? But they didn't. So it will be re-offered again in a later time. They did to him whatever they pleased. This is that prophet, if they believe, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So prophecy unfulfilled. Hard concept. Contingency planning is what it is. So you're saying that always when there's reference to the kingdom is Israel. Right. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Read, read the Gospels like you're reading the Old Testament. Now we get principles out of it for sure. Principles of life. I didn't even touch on the Sermon on the Mount. Here, here's the reality that any follower of God of any period of time should have. And I get tremendous lessons out of that for my own life. But it was for those particularly who were his heralds of the kingdom, the rules of the, 
uh, of life for a person who is going forth with the message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Directly applicable to the disciples then, and when the gospel of the kingdom is preached again uh, throughout the tribulation period. Is that not the same in our life? I either believe or I don't believe. Reject. Sure. Sure. There's no question about that. That's right. And, and they they made an option. They had a choice. They rejected it. Uh, a good translation of that is in your midst. It's standing here. Here I am. The people he is addressing, I think I can find it for you. Give me a minute. It's on this part of the page right about here. <laughs> uh, the people who ask that question are his enemies, the Pharisees. And uh, no one would ever say the kingdom of God is within them. And I have to find that so I can prove it. So give me a minute. Can anybody find it in the concordance? You know it by heart? Any of that good stuff? That's a very good question. I need to answer that for you. So just give me a minute to find it. Here it is. Uh, it's uh, Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, it is here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You're asking for signs and wonders and here I am. What have I been doing all this time? Now, notice it's the Pharisees who were his enemies asking him this. So it's not that he could say, the kingdom's in your heart. They were rejecting his message. So this is not a spiritualized, in-your-heart kingdom. He's saying, here I am. I'm the king. I'm standing here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Your responsibility is to repent, and the kingdom will come. So, again, it's, it's consistent with this literal concept. Recognize it's the people who are opposed to him that he answers, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, it can be translated within you, but clearly it was not within in any way their heart. They were opposed to him, and they were once trying to put him to death. So it clearly wasn't in their heart. It was clearly in their midst because they were looking at the king. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't think there's a difference. Uh, They're used, uh, when you put the parallel together, Jesus will say, one, trans, one, one column, a Mark column, say we'll have the kingdom of God, the Matthew column will have the kingdom of heaven. So, if they're used interchangeably by the authors where Jesus, he surely didn't say kingdom of God slash heaven. Okay? 
uh, he used one word or the other, but when the writers think about what he said and write it down on the paper, one will use the term kingdom of God, another will use the term kingdom of heaven. So I can't see a big difference if they seem to be used interchangeably. Now some will say, <coughs> in broad terms you can say the kingdom of God is reality, and the kingdom of heaven is his rule over all people. And most of the time that fits, but not all the time. I come down on them basically being used interchangeably. You have a viewpoint on that? Some do. Yeah, I, I, I've heard, heard and seen charts uh, about that, trying to reconcile it, but it seems like these are equal terms describing the same thing. Please turn the tape to side two. a concern about the comments as far as the Lord's evangelistic thrust to the nation of Israel only in his treatment of the Syrophoenician one. The Lord had extended himself to centurions served prior to this. He had used the sign of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba as an illustration to those who were there prior to this. Samaritan woman. 
And it won't be long. And when we get to the Perean ministry, he'll say, uh, tell you what, go out into the highways and have many of the sons of the kingdom who have rejected this will never sit down at table in the kingdom, but the people across the way will. So go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. It's a matter of timing. Matter of timing. And, and he does. He talks to the Samaritan woman. Uh, the centurion comes. It's a wonderful story. He says, uh, Lord, I, I am a man under authority, and I have people under, I understand all about authority. Will you heal them? No. Lord said, I've never seen this kind of faith in Israel. fact of the matter is, if it were not the Lord, he'd have turned to Gentile evangelism early on because <laughs> the response was much greater there. Uh, but there's a point, again, to, to what is being done, a matter of timing. Other questions? Sure, sure. Uh, when he's, that's at the end of the Galilean ministry. And, and that's an amazing statement for a lot of reasons. Uh, I used that passage, and we did when we were uh, looking at uh, uh, doctrine for the... Uh, Omniscience. It shows all. Th he knows all things real and potential. That if the works done here would have been done there, they would have repented. They'd remain till this day. Those cities. It shows us something else about God's sovereign dealing. That He can can see that certain people would have responded, given the opportunity, but they weren't given the opportunity. That's a mind stretcher right there. If these works would have been done there, they would have repented, but he didn't choose to do them there. He chose to do them in a place where they wouldn't repent. That's a mind-boggling statement. And uh, it's one of the verses we have to deal with as we're trying to put together all these pieces about how God works out his, his plan of salvation for us. Now again, we've skimmed through a lot of sections here, and uh, it's instructive for us to recognize the specialized ministry and how the uh, the veil is is lower than one that, so that they cannot understand the details of that until later. They have a wonderful aha experience. Is what Jesus promises when the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to bring all these things to your remembrance, and then they write it down for us. Any other questions before we can move on a little bit ahead into the Judean ministry? Okay, we have two provinces left to evangelize, the Judean, and uh, we'll, we'll take a look at, at some of the events in the Judean ministry at this time then. The Judean ministry, look at the uh, top of the Judean ministry. Uh, Jesus will go up to the feast privately. Uh, I, we need to understand the, uh, the excitement at the feast. Let's look at uh, John uh, chapter uh, 7 and verse 2. John 7 verse 2. The feast of tabernacles was at hand so his brother said to him leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing for no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. This is an interesting comment. He had brothers. Uh, Joseph departs from the scene. We, we don't see anything more about Joseph after the 12-year-old incident. It seems as though Joseph died. Jesus would have been the oldest. There were other boys, sisters as well probably, that were not believers. It would have been hard to grow up in that home with Jesus as the firstborn. Imagine having a perfect brother. Have any of you had a perfect brother or sister? <laughs> Some of us experience that. And uh, I, I'm a baby and I'm the third of, of uh, the family. And uh, sometimes you get the picture that everybody else was just a smidge better. Russ Van Ryan used to tell the story. It's a great story preacher was preaching and said is there a perfect man in this audience and a guy stood up and the preacher said I don't understand this he said you're perfect he said, no I'm not perfect I'm standing up representing my wife's first husband <laughs> that, that told it all didn't it <laughs> uh, it got great insight into that new marriage well, they were not believers. His brothers were not believers. And they're kind of mocking him now. He said, Jesus is at Nazareth. And he said, look, you're never going to be made king in Nazareth. It's a little hick town up in Galilee. Uh, the agrarian center of, of Palestine up in the breadbasket area. Go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I am not going up to the feast. So saying, he remained in Galilee. But he fooled them. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up. <laughs> Does that bother anybody? <laughs> I'm not going up to the feast. So after his brothers left, he went up. I guess the word yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Quickly. Publicly. Yeah. He, he's not going to go up publicly. He's going to go late for the feast. He's going to go up in a private way. And the fact is, this is the passage where we have the foxes of the holes and the, and the birds of the air have homes, but I don't. He's going up privately. He's all, he has some of his disciples with him, but he's going up privately. He's not making a big first day entrance and that's what they were saying go make a show he said no I'm not going to do that but there is a, a, a stir in the air in verse 11 of John 7 the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying where is he see his timing was on purpose and there was much muttering about him among the people some said he's a good man no he's leading the people astray yet for fear of the Jews no one spoke openly of him. Now, we had a, a round before we sang a round. I, I want to get you to have a feeling of what was going on uh, in Jerusalem. And we're going to do it the same way. Uh, I want you all to say to yourselves, mutter. Mutter, 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 mutter. There was much muttering. This is one of those kind of words. And I want you to start it. And then I'll give you a signal for you to say, mutter five times. Mutter five times. Mutter five times. Okay. You started. Do you hear what was happening? Okay. 
there was there are all these little knots of people around and you go up and they're talking about something and hear them talking all over the place all over the temple court you get up there and just as you're closing in what do they do they stop talking they change the subject have you ever come into a situation like that oh that's tough you, you, you feel like saying did I say something wrong uh, don't I have my clothes on right what's that, something wrong here you stop talking as soon as you they were afraid for fear of the Jews no one spoke openly about the middle of the feast verse 14 Jesus went into the temple and taught he's here now the Jews marveled at it saying how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied that's our students favorite verse <laughs> you know what it means is he never went to the formal schools of the Pharisees and yet he spoke with authority so Jesus is teaching and some of the people verse 25 said isn't this the man whom they seek to kill and here he's speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Messiah yet we know that where this man comes from and when the Christ appears no one will know where he comes from well that's not true now there's a perplexity here with Jesus preaching and teaching in the middle of the feast of tabernacles like this and the inactivity on the part of the Sanhedrin it looks like their hands are tied so in verse 32 the Pharisees heard the crowd thus muttering about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him okay the plot is thickening the crowds are saying he must be the Messiah they're not interfering they're not doing anything and word gets back to the to the Pharisees and their hand is forced and they say okay we're going to arrest him so they send out officers now these officers are not Roman soldiers these are temple police that would have to do with the, the uh, Jewish law so they send out this kind of person to these officers to arrest him top of page uh, oh, top of page 124 verse uh, 45 of John 7 the officers then went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him where is he we sent you out to arrest him and they answered this no man ever spoke like this man don't you love that uh, I mean they're shut down the Pharisees you get some insight into the Pharisees here are you led astray you also have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him but this crowd who do not know the law are accursed tell me what you observe out of that self-righteousness Self how do these shepherds relate to the sheep of Israel disdain the sheep they hate the sheep he's poor untaught illiterate accursed Jews oh man you see their heart in a moment of time don't you and then they say to themselves have any of us now there's a man sitting there in fact there are two men sitting there probably who have a big lump in their throat right now 
Have any of us believed? And Nicodemus clears his throat. He's about to say something. I don't think what he said is what he wanted to say. I think when he cleared his throat, he had one word he wanted to say. When they said, Have any of us, the authorities, the Pharisees, believed in him? I think Nicodemus wanted to say one thing. What do you think? I have. Because I think he had by now. But he got up and he says, Does our law condemn a man before it tries him? Now, was that a good thing to say? Good thing. It was political. It was a try. We'll read later that even some of the Pharisees were believers, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Is it possible to be a secret believer? I've been a secret believer to a lot of people. They've never heard what I believe. Even sometimes when I've had opportunity. And I sit down next to the person on the airplane and you get into those meaningless conversations. What are you going to do? Well, go on to a conference. I hope he doesn't ask me the next question. Which is, what kind of conference? Then I, once they say that, you're dead. A Bible conference. Oh, a Bible conference? Yeah, you're a preacher. Yes, I'm a preacher. You know? And then you have to, do any of you get that way that just soon I talk to the person sitting next to you? Anybody? Am I the only one? <laughs> I can keep it secret. In fact, uh, most Christians have it down to an art keeping it secret most of our neighbors don't know what we believe they know we're good people that we don't beat our wives or our dogs or at least our wives yeah but we can keep it secret do you have to confess it to be a believer I hope not I hope not the confession of Romans 10 9 and 10 is to God He's saying, so I agree with you, God. I'm saying what you say about Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of Muslims who are Christian, who are secret believers. They don't live long otherwise, a lot of them. And it's not quite, and a lot of them aren't baptized. They, they choose not to make a statement, just to live. And I, I have sympathy for that, don't you? I understand that. And I think Nicodemus is like that. He wants to say something. Does the law judge you? Are you from Galilee too? Search and you will see that no prophet is to rise from Galilee. Well, they got two problems there. Prophet ever come out of Galilee? Sure. And besides that, Jesus didn't come from Galilee. Where did he come from? Bethlehem, just where it said the Messiah would come from. So they were wrong on two counts. It is during this ministry that uh, another paragraph how many of you have uh, verse 53 in John 7 in different size print any of you have that you don't have it there where is it 
Oh my goodness. Now this is one of the other other passages that uh, falls into the same category of that angel passage. There's some uh, manuscript problems. I personally think this whole paragraph belongs in the text. It is very Christ-like, whereas the other thing was not very God-like. This one really is. And the Pharisees are trying to trap the Lord Jesus so that they can arrest him. So the story goes this way in verse 53. Uh, the scribes, verse, uh, early in the morning he came into the temple and all people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. What's the problem with that? Yeah, where's the man? I mean, come on. They've been caught in the very act. They say, this woman's been caught in the very act. This is an accepted practice down through history. You talk about the woman of ill repute. Well, what about all the men? Well, they're the leaders of the city. You know. There has been that degree of guilt of just one party where they're clearly too involved. But this was applied. Probably one of the Pharisees was the guy. How else how could you catch it? It's hard to catch a person in the very act. And they throw her down in front of Jesus and said, This woman's caught in the very act of adultery. Now what would you do about that? And the Lord, boy, this is a great answer. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery now in the law. Moses in the law. Moses condemned us to stone such. What do you say? This they said to trap him, to bring some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote. I have some ideas. I think he put a big Roman numeral one down, first of all. And you got the first commandment. It was probably the Hebrew letter. And the first commandment, and the second commandment, and the third commandment. And as you go through the commandments, uh, it starts striking home, doesn't it? Now, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. Well, Paul picks out one of the commandments as the easiest one. Which ones he pick? Thou shalt not covet. Anybody guilty of that one? <laughs> you don't even have to move to covet. You know, you, you hear somebody come and sing a hymn in the morning, and you say, I wish I could sing like that. You know? You don't even blink. Nobody knows you're sinning. The lady sits down in front of you, throws her coat back, and you see a Neiman Marcus label. They say, Man, I wish I had that coat. <laughs> you don't even think. You know, nobody knows what's going on. Covenanting is a totally private sin. It's the easiest of all sins. It's very difficult to rejoice in somebody else's prosperity. Have you ever noticed that? It really is. The first time you drive the new car up to the meeting, don't you have terrible feelings that Sunday? You know somebody's going to say something. Hey, you rob a bank? <laughs> Got a raise, nice car, and they're not all compliments. They're they're kind of jealousy statements, coveting statements. We all do it. 
And as Jesus, and I'm not sure he's writing that down, but it would make sense as he goes down this, the men start to leave. And notice the significance of the order. How's it go? All this to the youngest. Uh, do you ever really get disgusted with yourself the older you get as to the the reality of your relationship with God? You know, we're growing, but boy, there, there's still so much of the old man all the time. And uh, when the Lord is doing the convicting as he seems to be doing here, the old person has been around for a long time says, boy, I have really fallen short of the glory of God. And it's one of the reasons I think uh, we become better and better worshipers as we walk with the Lord. We, we kind of get to really understand who he's forgiven and how much he's forgiven and how regularly he forgives and how gracious he can take. Isn't it true? Yeah. From the oldest to the youngest, they uh, start wandering off and the Lord's left alone with this woman and he doesn't back off he's full of truth and grace he says go and don't do it again sin no more go and sin no more let's see let's look at one more thing on page I'm sorry John 8, uh, verse uh, 25. They said to him, Who are you? And Jesus uh, gets involved in this discussion. In verse 33, uh, they answered him, Well, let's do 31. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. Is that an unbelievable statement? Let's trace the history of Israel. When did, when did the nation start? In Egypt. That's when, you know, the nation. In bondage to the Egyptians. Did you ever hear the Babylonians? The, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. When have you never been in bondage? But they say we have never been in bondage to anyone. And in a sense, that's true. The will of the Jew has never been broken. And uh, though they try, even the terrible atrocities of the Holocaust, they survive. Disraeli was asked to prove the existence of God. And he said, the Jew. And that's a good answer. The world... Virtually every dimension of the world has tried to eliminate this people, and they prevail still. So I understand why they're saying that. We've never been in bondage to anyone. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage. How is it then that you will be made free? You say that to us. Jesus said to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free... You will be freed indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Uh-oh. 
Jesus is bringing up the question of filial relationship. They answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You do what your father did. They said to him, this is a slur. We were not born of fornication. What in the world are you doing talking about parentage? We know the whole story about you. We have one father, even God. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and come forth from God. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Is this baby Jesus meek and mild? He's toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. Which of you convicts me of sin? Verse 20, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. They said to him, you're not 50 years old in round numbers and you've seen Abraham. Jesus says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. Whoa, that did it. They're after the stones. You know, backed him into the corner and look what he does Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple how do you do that they tried to cast him over the hill in Nazareth and he passed through their midst this is sort of a B-class miracle he goes <laughs> he, he, he's just gone gone and the next thing he shows up he's passing by and he saw a man blind from birth. And we'll pick it up there tonight. Do you sense how frustrated the Sanhedrin's getting? They want him arrested. And the soldiers come back and said, that's the greatest preacher we've ever heard. <laughs> that, that doesn't cut it. Then, then he comes face to face with them and said, you're from your father, the devil. And they want to stone him and he disappears. Next thing you see, he's talking to this little blind man that we're looking at. And they'll interrogate him. And this blind man will stick it to him. You know, they are really getting upset. And they, they're being forced to do something. And we'll see what they're going to do. We'll uh, pick it up there this evening. Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, we uh, enjoy more and more the life of your son as we see him, a, a real man, and real discussion and confrontation. We see him angry and grieved and disappointed we see him sensitive and loving and forgiving we see him enduring all of this to bring about your good purposes and to bring about our salvation and we love to study the stories of Jesus we pray that uh, in this we may come to appreciate him more in your great grace pray you give us an afternoon of enjoyment and bring us back again to look into your word once again according to your good purposes, we pray in your Son's name.